From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, July 6th. I'm Marco Werman. Argentina tries to come to terms with its dirty war past by convicting two former military rulers of stealing babies. This awful thing of killing mothers, giving away their babies, has really captured the soul of Argentina, I think. Also, a Paralympian weighs in on the man they call the Blade Runner. Oscar's made tremendous strides based upon his athleticism, not because of his blades. Plus, how Tasmanian devils could help Australia control invasive species. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery. Don't miss the new season of Inspector Lewis, Sunday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Argentina has taken a big step toward coming to terms with its dirty war past. A federal court in Buenos Aires yesterday convicted two former military rulers of overseeing the systematic stealing of babies from political prisoners. Jorge Videla and Reinaldo Bignone are already in jail, convicted of other crimes committed during their rule in the 1970s and 80s. More than 30,000 people were disappeared, tortured, and murdered by Argentina's military during that period. David Summerstein has more from Buenos Aires. Almost 40 years ago, mothers of thousands of kidnapped men and women began marching in Buenos Aires' main square, the Plaza de Mayo, wearing iconic white headscarves. They demanded the military dictatorship tell them where their children were. We know today those children were brutally tortured and killed. The mothers also wanted to know what happened to their grandchildren. On Thursday, a three-judge panel convicted several former military leaders of enacting a systematic plan to steal those babies and hand them over to military officers and other families friendly to the dictatorship. The men denied the charges. Relatives of the stolen children cheered in the packed courtroom as the verdict was read. 300 more celebrated outside. Many of the babies were stolen at birth from women imprisoned in the notorious Esma Detention Center. Miriam Lewin was one of the few prisoners who survived. Last year, she told the BBC what went on there. There were many pregnant women kept at the Esma. They uh, gave birth, but before that, they prepared a letter to their families telling them to take good care of the newborn till they could join the baby. And it was very moving to see how they prepared their tiny clothes, and some of them drew flowers in the letters. We didn't even imagine that those babies were not going to their biological families. For many people here, the justice is long overdue. A commission formed after democracy was restored in 1983 didn't prosecute those responsible for the mass killings. It wasn't until 20 years later that trials began under late President Nestor Kirchner. 
According to Argentina's Independent Center for Legal and Social Studies, verdicts have been reached for only 17% of those accused of state terror. Maria Victoria Mojano, a daughter of disappeared parents who's been reunited with her family, says the rest must be brought to justice. We have one enormous job left because all the civil and intermediary sectors are still unpunished. If we say there was a genocide, we must punish and jail those sectors. Reaction to the verdict was subdued across the capital. The story only garnered a small headline at the bottom of the front page of leading newspaper Clarín. At a kiosk on bustling Corrientes Avenue, many people said the sentences were too little too late. Picking up a paper, Laura González says the dictators should have gotten 100 years or a life sentence. And she adds it should have been done many years ago. For The World, I'm David Summerstein in Buenos Aires. Robert Cox testified at the trial of the Argentine dictators. Cox lived in Argentina in the 1970s and was the editor of the Buenos Aires Herald newspaper. His stories were among the first to uncover the military's role in stealing the babies of political prisoners. Cox says he was pulled into the story because the relatives of disappeared political activists sought out his paper's reporters. People started to come to us. And, of course, first of all came the mothers whose children had disappeared, this terrible word, disaparecido, and then the grandmothers. Then I heard about the grandmothers getting together to form, because they had to operate almost secretly in those days. And I went to one of their very first meetings. There were, what, something like perhaps six or seven grandmothers. You know, I was just so, so impressed about them. And so we wrote, I wrote the first story to say that these grandmothers were searching for their children. They knew when their daughters were taken away roughly when they were likely to give birth, and so they were just desperate to find out what had happened. How dangerous was it for you to begin to explore the story and conduct your own investigation? I just decided it had to be done. You know, it sounds ridiculous, but I, I, you know, I did expect to be killed at any moment, so I went out and started doing my own reporting. I tried every way I possibly could. I would go to Government House, I would give them lists of names, I said, because they got angry, you know, they said, you can't publish the publish these stories. And I said, well, I'm not interested in, I'm just interested in these people are brought to trial if they're guilty of something. So I'll give you a list of names. I won't publish them. And one of the men that I had to see, and I got to like him in a way, he said to me, but you don't understand, Cox. You don't understand the situation. Our men, and they used to call these men who used to go out and do it, which I think was pretty, pretty broadly across all the armed forces, centurions. And he said, these men, he said, they have to do such terrible things that when they get back, they can't kiss their wives or touch their children. And I thought, that's exactly what the SS were told. You do the most terrible things, but we can never let people know what we do. But that makes what we do even more glorious. And I think that's how they managed to go through it. And I think that's how Videla's managed to do it. Now, you've met former Argentine dictator Jorge Videla several times. What was that like to see him on the witness stand? To see him there... I can't explain it, that this man was such a hypocrite because he pretended all the time that he was trying to stop what he called excesses. Actually, what I believe, well, the whole thing was out of control. I mean, they had this plan. He's now admitted to having drawn up a list of, he says, fifteen to 16,000 people who they marked off to kill. And he's said it openly, but for years he denied everything. He just kept everything quiet. Then he gave an interview actually to a friend of mine, which was strange that he was allowed to give it and that he gave it. And there he, he told him, well, you know, God was holding my hand all this time. 
He believes what he did was right. And he was doing it for God, and he was doing it against communism. He was doing it, you know, for Christianity. Robert, what about the consequences of this verdict for the abducted babies who are now adults? Uh, Does it deepen an already presumably profound identity crisis? No, it helps them enormously to realize. Mm. I mean, what is wonderful about them and about the abuelas, they're the grandmothers, is the sense of community that they have. The children of the disappeared work. A lot of them work for the grandmothers voluntarily in some cases. Sometimes they, they have jobs because the mothers managed to set up this wonderful DNA bank to establish identity. And Argentina has gone very deeply into this. There's a theater of identity, the realization of the importance of identity. It's extraordinary how this thing, this awful thing of, of killing mothers, giving away their babies, taking away their identity, has really captured the soul of Argentina, I think. And I hope it will help the, the country to cure itself, to get back to, you know, to humanity, because this country went through a time of, of incredible horror, which most people appeared to ignore. Robert Cox was the editor of the Buenos Aires Herald in the 1970s. It was the first paper to break the story of the orchestrated theft of hundreds of Argentine babies born to political prisoners in the 1970s. Robert, thank you very much. No, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Robert Cox also spoke with WGBH-TV's Maria Inahosa about Argentina's dirty war and his work during that period. We have the video at theworld.org. The world's newest nation, South Sudan, will be a year old next week. The country now has its own currency and Internet domain, but it also remains one of the poorest nations in the world. Yet some still find reason to celebrate. In the capital, Juba, reporter Alexa Dvorzin spoke with one of South Sudan's young nation builders. Ladies and gentlemen from the Atlantic First speaking, welcome on board. On our way to Juba. Seen from the air, South Sudan's vastness is matched by its challenges. While newcomers gasp at the lack of infrastructure, old-timers marvel how far Juba has come in just a year. But there's a lot of unfinished business with Sudan to the north, some of it bloody. Border disputes, ethnic conflict, and issues over oil wealth. Palek Matthew, a 24-year-old law graduate, takes a pragmatic view. Being a new nation is a very big challenge. Things can get really messy. But as much as there's a chance for things to go bad or things are not looking very promising, personally, I think it's better that we have separated. It's our country, you know. Let's just stay good neighbors instead of being together and things are not getting anywhere. But it's not easy being good neighbors. Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir is accused of war crimes and wanted by the International Criminal Court for genocide. And South Sudan was heavily criticized for its April incursion of the Heglige oil fields across the border. Palek, an ethnic Nuer whose family is from the south, grew up in Khartoum during Sudan's two-decade civil war. When she moved from the north to Juba four years ago, she gave up a much higher standard of living. But she has no regrets. Life was better there, but I was the one who went and told my parents, I want to go to South Sudan. And I remember there was only one proper road. Everywhere else, it was just no electricity, no proper water, infrastructure. Uh Uh-uh. People sleep once the sun sets. I was like, God, what kind of life is this? You know, it was just something I wasn't used to. But I was glad I'm in my country. I mean, this is my home, you know. So that's it. I got used to it bit by bit. You still need a four-wheel drive to navigate Juba's deeply rutted roads. 
Or you can ride on the back of a Boda Boda, the ubiquitous motorcycles from neighboring Uganda that serve as taxis. Despite the fertile soil, there's no commercial agriculture, so food is expensive because most of it is imported. Sipping a cool drink as UN peacekeeping troops splashed around in a swimming pool one broiling afternoon, Palek shared an experience she had on the losing side of job discrimination, a kind of favoritism she thinks is holding her country back. When I finished my law degree, I was the top of my class for four years. And when I came to apply to legal affairs, I didn't get a job. I don't know who, what happened. When I went to apply, they're asking me, who sent you? Who recommended you? I mean, like, I'm a graduate of law school. Do I have to be recommended? These are my degrees. And some of my colleagues are there. Some subjects they didn't clear, and they're already sitting in offices as legal advisors. So I just... Are they men? Men and women. <laughs> so to me, I felt like this is a very unfair, very unfair system. Palak diversified for a while, working at an organization promoting press freedom and as a TV anchor. She sympathizes with her compatriots who have found themselves in tough situations after returning from the diaspora. But while immigrants from neighboring countries are eager to take jobs here, she can't say the same about many locals. I'm going to be very frank, and this is what I feel. If you go around Jubatown, you'll see a lot of young, healthy men seated from morning to night drinking tea on the street. They're not disabled. Some of them are university graduates, but they'd rather sit there, drink tea every day and do nothing. Well, too bad somebody else will come and do something that you could have possibly done. You get me? So there's this attitude, we need to change our southerners because there are some jobs, like being a waiter or a waitress in a hotel or in a restaurant, they don't want to do that. They're kind of proud, like, I can't do this, you know? Driving those buses for public transport, they don't want to do that. Then too bad, somebody else will come and do it if you don't want to do it, you know? Palek's can-do spirit eventually won out. She expects to get her law license this month and plans to open her own practice. She's also joined the South Sudan Women's Empowerment Network, a group campaigning for constitutional reform and greater awareness of women's rights. For Palek, the 9th of July is tinged with sadness. Her father died two years to the day before independence. So she'll be spending some time alone, she says, for reflection. After that, it's back to nation-building. For the world, this is Alexa Devorsen in Juba, South Sudan. Still ahead, in impoverished Haiti, a garden gives reason to hope on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The opening ceremony for the London 2012 Summer Games is exactly three weeks from today, and the city of London is abuzz with Olympic anticipation. The world's Alex Galifant will be in London during the Games, and he joins me now for a preview. Alex, the Olympic torch relay is winding through Britain. The venues are mostly ready. Olympics fans must be getting pretty stoked right now. What are you most looking forward to as a fly-on-the-wall observer? Well, you know, I, I know London pretty well, so I think one of the things I'm most excited about is seeing how iconic elements of the London landscape are, are being repurposed for the game. So seeing archery, you know, at Lord's Cricket Ground, mm. for instance. But, you know, the other thing I'm really excited about is to see the film director Danny Boyle's version of the English mythological countryside in the opening ceremony, which we're promised is going to include hundreds of farm animals. Oh, my gosh. That sounds wonderful. Doesn't <laughs> Danny it? Danny Boyle. He'll do it. He'll pull it off. Yeah. 
Now, I, I gather there are some concerns about these games now three weeks away. There are some concerns. Yesterday, there was a scare that seems to have made people a bit jumpy. A scare that closed major roads, saw the scrambling of armed police units, emergency services, and all it was was a man smoking an electronic cigarette on a bus. This happened near Birmingham, the UK's second largest city. Another man on the bus saw vapor from this device. You know, electronic cigarettes are used by smokers to help them quit the habit. Mm. And he called the police. He was worried. So kind of high anxiety. That was a misunderstanding, though. But there are reasons for people to be concerned about security, right? Right. I mean, don't forget that the very first day after the games were awarded to London in July 2005, Islamic militants bombed London's transport system. Those attacks killed 56 people. Now, British security services have expressed confidence that the games will go ahead without a major security incident. But they are working with the FBI and the CIA, among others, to ensure that. And what about that other constant worry in London, the weather? Well, it's been a miserable summer so far in the UK. The covers have been on at the Wimbledon Tennis Championships. My brother was telling me that he's only been able to sit outside with a book once in the past couple of months. So when I get that, I fear I, along with everybody else in London, will be competing in a sort of informal, synchronized umbrellas event. Okay, don't bump into anyone. Now, finally, Alex, the last time London hosted the Olympics was in 1948, and you spotted something which I'd like you to share with us. Uh, it's a newspaper article from The Guardian from July 22nd, 1948. Right. Well, remember that in 1948, the UK was still in the middle of post-war rationing. There just wasn't a lot of food to go around. And so you get this little article called Olympic Diet. And it goes like this. This is a quote. The main American Olympic Games team, numbering nearly 300, who arrived at their camp yesterday, brought with them 5,000 sirloin steaks weighing approximately 2,812 pounds, thousands of chops, 15,000 bars of chocolate, two and a half thousand pounds of ham and two thousand pounds of spiced ham they asked for and received a dinner of roast beef and yorkshire pudding so there wow. you go hungry americans you know given all the post-war rationing in england i hope the americans shared <laughs> well, you'd like to think so wouldn't you the world's alex galifant uh, enjoy the olympics when you get there and uh, let the excitement begin thanks marco can't wait one of the biggest Olympic stories this week was the news that Oscar Pistorius will compete at the London Games. The South African will be the first double amputee to race in the 400-meter relay team, and he'll also compete in the individual 400-meter event. Up to now, Pistorius has been a very successful Paralympics athlete, meddling in several events. He races wearing carbon fiber prosthetic blades, earning him the nickname Blade Runner. John Register has more than an inkling of the challenges for Oscar Pistorius. John Register was a four-time All-American from the University of Arkansas and twice qualified for the Olympic trials, both in high hurdles and in the 400-meter intermediate hurdles. That was before he lost a leg. Since then, he's been a two-sport Paralympic athlete in swimming and in track. John, it was in 1994 while training for the Olympics that you had an accident that changed everything for you. Tell us what happened. I went across a hurdle. I dislocated my left knee. The dislocation caused a severing of the popliteal artery. And five days later, I went from this world-class athlete, you know, seventh or eighth ranked in the, in the country, to an amputee. Yeah, and what's really extraordinary is that it didn't stop you from competing. You've taken part in two Paralympics since then, 96 and 2000. And it was in 96 when you were competing as a swimmer, I gather, that you decided to train to compete in track at the 2000 Paralympics. What persuaded you to switch? 
The persuasion came by a gentleman on the track and field. He was a long jumper as well. And I'd never seen a person with an artificial leg run leg over leg on the track before. And this guy was coming down the track on the long jump runway. And as he hit the takeoff board with the whole crowd behind him, they were cheering for him and clapping for him. And at the height of his flight, his artificial leg flew off. And I said, wow, I've never seen that before. So he lands one place, his artificial leg lands in another place, and uh, the whole crowd goes dead silent like, oh, my gosh, what are we witnessing right here? But he turns back to the long jump official and yells out, now where are you going to measure my jump from, from right here or where my artificial leg landed up there? <laughs> and I said, that's a brilliant attitude to have. So I switched back to running again, and I began to understand the differences, the nuances, and the difficulty of running with an artificial leg. So you have this rare experience of being a star athlete uh, competing both with two legs and now with one leg. Exactly. And I think that when we flip over to Oscar Pistorius, we talk about this, does he have an advantage on these blades? Does it make him any faster? In my opinion, he gives up a lot at the start. People that have total legs, they can push off the starting blocks with their feet, and they can accelerate by using their calf muscles to move them or propel them down the track. Oscar doesn't have that. He has to propel and move everything from his knee joints as well as from his hips. That's where everything comes from. He gives up things on the turn. Remember, he can't feel his feet on the ground. His feet are actually what he feels are about a foot above the ground. So when he's running a curve, his legs are trying to escape a foot off the ground and not in contact with the track. So that means at any given time, those legs, just like that long jumper, can slip, they can twist. And he can't just reach down and put them back in the right position. He has to run the rest of the race like that. John, set aside the disadvantages and the advantages for a moment. Is it ultimately an even competition if you've got contestants who have legs and other contestants who've got blades? I think you have to look at what... The situation is, Oscar's situation is, number one, he's congenital from birth. He's not like someone that, that had lost his legs during trauma and had to relearn some of these things like I had, had to learn. Number two is you can measure kind of apples and apples with him because as he's walking, you can't even tell if he's walking with a pair of pants on that he's, he's walking on artificial limbs. He's symmetrical with that. So as he lines up with other sprinters who are symmetrical, able bodies, then he, he is right in, in the pocket with him, so to speak. But when you look at a person like myself, an above-knee amputation, we're just not at the level to compete with the Olympic-class athlete because we're asymmetrical, right? Mm. That is really where the crust of the matter comes. And the reason why Paralympics has classifications for athletes to run with like disabilities. What about the whole issue of people with physical disabilities competing in the Olympics? I mean, does it undermine the, the whole argument for having a Paralympics if people with physical disabilities can achieve the goal of competing in the Olympic Games? No, I, I think that both the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games are phenomenal sporting events. They're the largest in the world for what they do. And most Paralympic athletes are not going to cross over into the Olympic realm. There are those, however, that, that have done it before. And I mean, Oscar's not the first. Marla Runyon it did it in the 2000 Games. She was a blind athlete for the United States. States of America. She ran the 1500 meters in 2000. I think there was also an amputee open water swimmer from Australia. I think what we don't realize is that both athletes, the Olympic athlete and the Paralympic athlete, they are phenomenal athletes. I mean, Oscar running underneath 45.5 seconds is incredible. Mm. Oscar's made tremendous strides based upon his athleticism, not because of his blades. John Register is a multi-sport athlete both before and after losing a leg. He's now a motivational speaker. John, thanks so much. Have a great day. You can see Pistorius racing at the Beijing Paralympics at theworld.org. This is PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a reporter finds a green oasis in one of Haiti's worst slums. We have, like, nice spinach leaves. We have, like, nice, like, green onions. Also, Australia considers a deal with the devil. How bringing the Tasmanian devil back to mainland Australia could help control invasive species there. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The recount of votes from Mexico's presidential election did not change the outcome. Election officials say the winner is still Enrique Peña Nieto of the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI. But that hasn't stopped the complaints from the candidate who came in second, Andres Manuel López Obrador. He's vowing to challenge the results in the courts. The vote was marred by allegations of vote buying by the PRI and its supporters. Reporter Frank Contreras is in Mexico City. Frank, how did this election get to this point? Well, according to the challenger, leftist candidate Andres Manuel López Obrador, he says all this happened weeks, if not months, before the election took place on July 1st, Marco. He says that the Institutional Revolutionary Party, whose candidate is Enrique Peña Nieto, the now official president-elect of Mexico, he says that candidate and his party used a scheme to buy off the vote and coerce people around the country to give their votes to the pre-candidate. And so Lopez Obrador says his next task is to gather this evidence and present it to a court here. From what I understand, Frank, vote buying in Mexico isn't so black and white. Are, are these allegations going to be difficult to prove? I think they're going to be very difficult to prove. Uh, many people around the country and, and even around the world believe that the president-elect of Mexico is Enrique Peña Nieto, the candidate of the Institutional Revolutionary Party. And so it really is going to be a, a difficult legal challenge now for López Obrador and his team of lawyers to show that actual vote fraud Dick did take place. This week, he gave a news conference, Marco, at his campaign headquarters, Lopez Obrador, and he was standing in front of walls that were essentially wallpapered with these plastic prepaid cards. He says that a national supermarket chain called Soriana um, made a deal with the Institutional Revolutionary Party to give people this debit card in exchange for their vote. Now, the candidate who came in third, uh, Josefina Vasquez Mota, with the National Action Party, uh, she has said that this episode should be the start of reforming electoral laws in Mexico. What are the main things in the laws there that critics have problems with? The biggest problem that critics find is the way the votes are actually tallied, they say. What happens is that citizens conduct the tallies at the local level inside the voting stations. Then they place that information onto um, a vote form, and the form is sent to the federal electoral officials. And then the officials take that form, and they, they count up the votes. So they're not really counting up the votes. What they're doing is counting up the tallies on those official forms. So the, the, the problem is that, according to López Obrador, some of the numbers were changed. How much has this election and these results shattered Mexicans' uh, trust in their system? There's still a huge number of Mexicans that believe that vote fraud did take place. Whether or not that's true, that's what they actually believe. So they've lost faith entirely, they say, in their electoral system. They say they already had lost that faith back in 2006 when the vote was so close 
and a lot of people back then were claiming vote fraud took place. That was never proven. But now something very similar from their point of view seems to have taken place here. And I think what we're seeing is a young generation of Mexicans coming up through the universities here, and many of them simply do not believe that the institutions here can guard a free and fair election. And, you know, that's not a very good thing for for any country, is it? Reporter Frank Contreras joining us from Mexico City. Thanks a lot, Frank. Thank you, Marco. In 2010, correspondent Dave Iverson spent a week in Haiti covering the aftermath of the earthquake there for the PBS NewsHour. Earlier this year, he returned to Port-au-Prince and revisited some of the sites he'd reported from two years before. And as often happens in Haiti, Dave Iverson didn't always find what he expected. The earthquake's lingering impact shifts block by block in Port-au-Prince. You travel down one street and you think things are looking better. Then you round the corner, and it's 2010 all over again. So this is the main boulevard in Port-au-Prince. I always say the same thing when I go by. I hope I have time to pass before it collapses. That's Daniel Tilius, the translator for our reporting team two years ago. Today, he's taking us back through the city. A few blocks from downtown, the familiar tilted outline of the ruined National Palace comes into view, unchanged. It's almost as if it's being preserved like the Memorial Dome in Hiroshima. But the ruins here are actually testimony to something else. Why hasn't the palace been torn down? It's been a lot of discussion about, like, which country will we build it? Is it, like, the United States, France, or another one? Or does it have to be Haiti, like, building this? And the whole debate, like, slow down the process of putting it down. If there's one constant in Haiti, it's that nothing is ever easy. And then Daniel suggests a new destination, the place he grew up, a Port-au-Prince neighborhood that was devastated long before the quake, City Soleil. It's been really raining, so the wood is really bad. Driving into City Soleil, you see kids, half-clothed at best, playing in the mud outside a sea of ramshackle shelters and tents. Almost 250,000 people live in City Soleil, it's the poorest place in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Everyone here seems to know Daniel. That's because even though he's created a new life for himself away from City Soleil, he's never really left. Besides running his translation business, Daniel works for Pax Christi, a Catholic social justice organization. And there's something here he wants to show us. An older woman pushes open a massive gate and inside, we discover soccer. For years, people only see children in Cité Soleil as the enemy of the society. They think they cannot do anything good in their life. To combat that, Pax Christi started the Inyon Sports Club. It includes not only a soccer field, but classrooms and a small store. And something Daniel calls the wall of dreams. So we wanted like to go and ask every kid involved in the soccer program, what would you like to do when, like, for your future? And everyone will put the name and what they want to be in the life. Can they you read a few of them? Yeah, I can. This is Shadik Kalin. I will be a nurse in 2020. That's my dream. And we have Alexis Jovenier. I'll be an agronomist in 2017. My dream. Becoming an agronomist seems like an unlikely dream for a kid growing up in City Soleil. But Daniel hasn't finished his tour yet. 
and this is the garden. It's an impossible sight. Here in one of the most impoverished places on earth, a sudden abundance of green, rows of peppers, spinach, tomatoes, and some non-traditional container gardening. We use the tires that normally were the tires that would be burned in the sweet dowinga potas. So we turn them as a container for, for gardening. And it's working fine. We have like nice spinach leaves. We have like nice like green onions. But the prize of Daniel's garden is a row of moringa trees. Moringa is known in some part of Africa as the Miwoko tree because every part of the tree is useful for something. You can actually eat the leaves and salad. The branches good. The wood's good for making tea. The whole idea was about like teaching kids about like basic of gardening so they can eat healthier, but at the same time create ways for them to make some money. <laughs> Whether he's standing on this patch of green or the soccer pitch, Daniel keeps up a steady patter to the kids who surround him, always preaching the value of education. Nicole. They mostly listen, but they're kids. <laughs> what are you laughing about? <laughs> what I'm telling about, like, school is more important than sport. Is it like, yes, both are important. And by the way, I don't have a shoes for the practice. Maybe, like, you should think about this. <laughs> In City Soleil, thousands of kids don't have the shoes for a shot on goal. Daniel Tilius is just trying to make sure a handful of them get a shot at something more. And that's all they need, a chance. And the children now feel like they need to take this chance. A chance. Yes, the odds against them are great. But two former team members are now attending university. And like those leaves and branches of the moringa tree, Daniel Tilius and the Inyon Sports Club at least represent possibility. And in City Soleil, as in all of Haiti, possibility is always worth nourishing. <laughs> For The World, I'm Dave Iverson. You can see The Wall of Dreams and The Vegetable Garden in Cité Soleil. A slideshow of Dave Iverson's pictures is at theworld.org. In every garden, there are weeds. For our GeoQuiz today, we want you to name one weed that's spread all over Britain. And it's a problem here, too. This weed is an invasive species native to Asia. Almost a century ago, it was a prized ornamental plant. It was first imported to Britain to plant around stately homes. Later, it made its way to America. Back in its home country in Asia, this plant is usually found near volcanoes. Here and in Britain, it's almost impossible to get rid of. If you're a gardener, the second half of its name, knotweed, is a big clue. The first half is derived from its country of origin. So name that country. We'll tell you how the British are hoping to control this invasive plant when we come back with the answer. Australia has one of the worst invasive species problems in the world. Efforts to control or eliminate them have mostly failed. So now some Australian scientists are proposing a whole new approach. They want to reintroduce two native predators to the country's landscape. Phil Mercer has our story. (laughs) 
It's a sound that hasn't been heard in the wild on Australia's mainland for centuries, the screech of a Tasmanian devil. But researchers at Deakin University in Melbourne believe the devil, one of the country's most cantankerous creatures, could be part of the answer to Australia's ongoing battle to control invasive species. Since European colonisation, introduced species have drastically altered the Australian environment, resulting in the world's highest mammal extinction rate. Species like foxes, cats, rabbits, cane toads, camels has just changed fundamentally the face of Australia. Rebecca Spindler is a conservation specialist at Sydney's Taronga Zoo. Our native species are not able to compete with a lot of those species and they're also not as predator aware as they need to be to be able to run away from those really very, very effective pest predators that have come in. Controlling these newcomers has been an ongoing struggle. G'day guys, just out for a quick hunt. It relies heavily on methods like poisoning, fencing and shooting. But these efforts have largely failed to limit the damage. That's why attention is now turning to the Tasmanian devils. The weasel-like carnivorous marsupials disappeared from mainland Australia long before the arrival of Europeans. But they've held out ever since on the island of Tasmania. And Deakin University ecologist Ewan Ritchie says there's evidence that the devils have helped to keep pest populations there in check. Foxes have been attempted to be introduced to Tasmania many times before, but the reason why they haven't established themselves is because of the presence of devils. So that's kind of good evidence for why we might want to think about bringing devils back to the mainland to control foxes. Richie thinks there's also potential in another indigenous predator, the fearsome dingo. (laughs) The native wild dogs have been eliminated in much of Australia, but they still prowl other parts of the country. So there's quite strong potential that the dingo could be quite effective at controlling cats and foxes and things like kangaroos on the mainland. And the devil has been doing quite a good job in controlling other things in Tasmania. So the idea, of course, is to actually use these predators to our own advantage. Ritchie concedes that repopulating parts of Australia with dingoes is a radical idea that would be opposed by sheep farmers, for example. But supporters say the American experience with reintroducing wolves and other predators to places like Yellowstone National Park shows that such ambitious schemes can work, despite local opposition. Researchers would have to carry out small trials here in Australia to know if the idea would work with dingoes and Tasmanian devils. And they'd also first have to overcome another challenge. The little guy just came out and wanted to see whether or not we were putting any food in there because obviously you can hear my voice. Senior keeper Nick DeVos points out a young Tasmanian devil at Sydney's Taronga Zoo. It's here because it turns out that the devils themselves are endangered. In recent years, the feisty marsupials have been hit by a mystery cancer that's devastating the wild population on Tasmania. While researchers struggle to get a handle on the disease, there's a nationwide effort to establish healthy captive populations. Taronga is part of a broader insurance program which is basically put together to save the species against extinction in the wild. If the captive breeding program is successful, some of the young devils could then be reintroduced to the wild of mainland Australia for the first time in hundreds of years. As for how the public would respond to the idea, supporters acknowledge that neither the dingo nor the noisy Tasmanian devil are as revered here as the devil's cuddly marsupial cousins, the koala. But they say public opinion is likely to be supportive because most Australians understand that the natural world needs its apex predators. For the world, 
I'm Phil Mercer, Sydney. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery. Detectives Lewis and Hathaway are back on the case, battling a crime wave in the academic haven of Oxford, England. Don't miss the new season of Inspector Lewis, Sunday night at 9, 8 central, on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There's a weed here in the U.S. and in Britain that was exported from its native country as an ornamental plant. Its heart-shaped leaves can be very attractive, but if you've ever tried to get rid of it, you'll know how difficult that is. In Britain, it's found across the country, and all are clones of just one plant. Now British scientists have a plan to get rid of it, an insect. But rather than turn to a native species, they're turning to an insect from the plant's native country that's fussy enough to only eat that plant. Dick Shaw is lead researcher for this project. He's with the Oxford-based group CABI, the Center for Agricultural Bioscience International. And Dick, first of all, what is this weed called and just how destructive is it? It's called Japanese knotweed, and it's one of the most destructive weeds we know. Yeah, how destructive? Well, it can, it's famous for pushing through tarmac and drainage and even concrete foundations, so it's a threat to buildings as well as the natural environment. Right. So Japanese knotweed and Japan is the answer to our geoquiz today. And unlike other plants that have place names, uh, Japanese knotweed is actually from Japan, right? Yes, it's, uh, it's found all over Japan. There's lots of different types of Japanese knotweed in Japan. We were unlucky enough to get one of the most aggressive clones, Fallopia japonica, Val japonica. That's the one we're most worried about. Mm. And so uh, can the exit of this particular species from Japan be traced back to a particular time or person? Yes, exactly. There was a gentleman called Philippe von Siebold who was one of the first um, doctors to enter Japan and was given unprecedented access to the environment. So he collected quite a few species, including Japanese knotweed, and he made uh, quite a lot of money out of selling it. It was an extremely expensive, very rare, and very novel ornamental plant. Right. So we find it here in North America as well. What, What year was this? Uh, it was 1825 is the earliest record we have of it arriving in Britain. The U.S. was probably more like 1850, a little later than that. Right. So in Britain, a couple of centuries of getting out of control. How out of control is it in the U.K.? It's spread to almost every 10 by 10 square kilometer grid in the whole country, which is uh, how we measure our, our species. And how has it managed to get so out of control and, and not kind of checked by anything? almost exclusively human intervention for the spread, but it arrived here without its natural enemies. So in Japan, it has 186 species of insect feeding on it in Japan. Um, In the UK, nothing feeds on it, almost nothing, and the same for the US. So uh, tell me about holding auditions for an insect from Japan to control knotweed in Britain. I mean, was eradication the aim? No, we're always aiming for control. We never use the E word because if the plant is eradicated, then the the only food source for the biocontrol agent is removed as well and it dies itself. So it desperately needs to retain the plant. It just wants to keep it in check. That's the target. And uh, what insect did you choose? We ended up with a thing called Aphalara itadori, um, which is a sap-sucking psyllid, hard to say. Um, and it- itadori is the Japanese name for Japanese knotweed. So we had a good idea that it was a specialist from its name. And Dick, isn't there a, a risk that those insects will get a taste for British plants now and do what the Japanese knotweed has done, essentially take over? Well, there's a very low risk. The the species has spent many uh, millennia evolving to be specific to this particular plant. And there are many examples of species of insects that are threatened with extinction because their host plant is threatened with extinction. And they are under huge pressure to change what they feed upon, and they're not doing so. So the risk of them actually making a leap is pretty, pretty slim. 
has there been any interest in North America, the U.S., for uh, this uh, sap-sucking psyllid? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we've got some colleagues in uh, Washington State University and in uh, AAFC Lethbridge in Canada who are working alongside us, and I've actually surveyed in the field with them in Japan. Um, and they are also looking at the psyllid. They have a culture of the psyllid going in their own quarantine um, and are preparing petitions as we speak. Dick Shaw, lead researcher on the project. He's from the Oxford-based group CABI, the Center for Agricultural Bioscience International. And he was speaking with us from the south of France, where he's on vacation. Dick, thank you very much for taking time out to speak with us. Thank you. A pleasure. You can see what Japanese knotweed and its insect nemesis look like. We have a video at theworld.org. And while you're there, you can also check out the latest blog post from our science correspondent, Ritu Chatterjee. It includes a slideshow of a flower market located under an iconic bridge in Calcutta, India. Finally today, our global hit demands some background. This was the week that physicists announced that they may have discovered the subatomic particle known as the Higgs boson. As we all know by now, the Higgs boson is supposedly the particle that gives all matter in the universe its mass. Coincidentally, this week in 1946 was when the bikini first went on sale. I know, seems like a random coincidence, but there is a connection. The man who invented the modern bikini was a French automobile engineer named Louis Réard. He had taken over his mother's lingerie boutique in Paris and took a new fancy to designing soft stuff. At the same time, another man, a fashion designer named Jacques M, was also working on a two-piece swimsuit. M was inspired by the atomic age that had been ushered in a year earlier at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He called his two-piece the Atom, the Atom, the world's smallest bathing suit. Its midriff was somewhere at the belly button line. Legend has it that Louis Réal decided to one-up, or one-down, if you will, Jacques M., Réal used the 1946 atomic bomb test on the Bikini Atoll in the South Pacific as his marketing tool. His bathing suit midriff dropped well below the navel. Réal bragged that he had split the atom, and it was he who got all the glory. So, in honor of the Bikini's anniversary, a little music, please. In keeping with the skimpy French swimsuit theme, I leave you with a song featured in Wes Anderson's latest film, Moonrise Kingdom. Anderson's soundtracks are always quirky. This one is anchored mostly by Hank Williams and composer Benjamin Britten. 1960s French pop singer Françoise Hardy also stands out prominently. Her tune, Le Temps de l'Amour, which the young characters in Moonrise Kingdom dance to on the beach, makes for good retro summer fun. C'est le temps de l'amour, le temps des copains et de l'aventure Quand le temps va et vient On ne pense à rien Malgré ses blessures Car le temps de l'amour C'est long et c'est court Ça dure toujours On s'en souvient We have a video preview of Moonrise Kingdom featuring Françoise Hardy's Le Temps de l'Amour at theworld.org Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg the World is produced by Andrea Crossan with Amy Bracken, Alex Castillo, Joyce Hackle, Carol Hills, David Lavalley, April Peavy, Adeline Sia, Tracy Tong, and Marcus Rate. Our interns are Brendan Maddox, Ren Sine, and Angela Sun. Anne Lopez is our director. Our editors are Jennifer Gorin and Aaron Schachter. William Troop is senior editor. Chris Wolf is news editor. Our managing editor is Jonathan Dyer. The executive producer of The World is Andrew Sussman. 
from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. When I'm not on the radio, you can often find me on Twitter at Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. Un beau jour, c'est l'amour, et le cœur va plus vite. Car la vie suit son cours, et l'on est tout heureux d'être amoureux. C'est le temps de l'amour, le temps des copains et de l'aventure. Quand le temps va et vient, on ne pense à rien malgré ses blessures. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Annenberg Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.